0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Book of Psalms, so grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: This evening we are going to take a look at Psalm 15 and Psalm 16. Psalm 15 is only five verses. It's short and it's very direct. It really only approaches one topic. Psalm 16 gets a bit more theological and then ultimately will end up in Acts 13 before the night is over. There are certainly relationships, certainly things that we can contrast and compare between these two psalms. They are both psalms from David. And so there are thematic elements that we can look at. But Psalm 15 just asks a very simple, direct question. "O Lord, who may abide in your tent and who may dwell in your holy hill? Now, that reference to a tent right there is a reference to a dwelling. David might be thinking about the tabernacle, which is the tent of meeting, where the Holy of Holies was, but I think what he's really saying is who can dwell in your presence, considering who you are, considering how holy you are, and he makes reference to your holy hill, which may be a reference to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem, the place where God chose to place his name, Jerusalem is on a hill. But David seems to be asking a more pertinent question than that because he's going to get into the characteristics of a man who can dwell in God's presence. So, O Lord, who may abide in your tent? I think he means under your covering, to be part of your community. Who can dwell on your holy hill? I think he means who is ultimately going to live with you in your presence. Now, the next four verses are going to answer that question. David, of course, is under the law of Moses. And he is using the law of Moses as the standard by which he is ruling from Jerusalem. And so all of his answers, for the most part, have to do with behavior and have to do with the inward character of a man. And so if you just took this psalm by itself, you could say, well, David sounds a tad legalistic here. Except that once we get to Psalm 16, he says in verse 2, I have no good besides you. He's saying, I have no inward characteristic of goodness. I have no inward value to myself except you. So David seems to understand, since he does know his own sin, since he does know his own failures, since he has been punished by God for those failures, he understands that God's standard stands. But he also understands his inability to live up to that standard and that the only goodness he has within him comes from God. So actually, his overall theology is very much like the whole rest of the Bible. We all know that God has a standard, When Paul writes to the Corinthians, when he says, uh, he lists all the different sins of mankind and says, and such were some of you, but you've been washed. There is a change that takes place in a Christian person because if you, in fact, have a holy God placing his Holy Spirit inside of completely unholy people, then in that conflict, one side or the other is going to win out And either your unholiness is going to drag the holiness of God down or the holiness of God is going to overwhelm you and your depravity and pull you up. And of course, that's the way it works because he is all powerful and you're a worm. And so his holiness is going to overwhelm you and is going to take you through this process of conforming you into the image of his son. Well, that seems to be the same thing that David is talking about here. In Psalm 15, he's going to say that there is an inward integrity to the people who God is going to have dwelling with him. There is just this inward character that they have that then results in proper behavior. But then in Psalm 16, he's going to say that his only goodness is God himself. So it's a very balanced theology that David demonstrates here. O Lord, who may abide in thy tent? Who may abide on thy holy hill? The answer is, he who walks with integrity. So first he talks about the inward man. If you have an internal integrity, an internal honesty, an internal sense of right and wrong, and you are pursuing the right, that is an internal sense of integrity. But then that internal walking in your integrity results in righteous works. Because that's the second half of the sentence. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness. I like that he put them in that order. He didn't start with, you just have to walk in righteousness, because people can do good things. People can do what appears to be moral things, even though they're corrupt inside. Certainly, there have been things that very corrupt people have done in this world that we might think, well, well that was beneficial. I mean, every once in a while, even the worst despots of this world will feed people. Then we'd say, okay, that's a good work. That's a righteous work that you did when you fed people. But there is no inward integrity driving that. So David starts with, you walk in integrity. You walk in this character that is goodness from the inside outward. He walks with integrity. And then, therefore, he works righteousness. And part of that inward integrity is he speaks truth in his heart, in his inward man. So because he has integrity inside himself, because he is an upright, honest man internally, even the things that he says are true things. So verse 3, he does not slander with his tongue. That's the opposite of Speaking truth, if you're constantly speaking truth, then one of the things you won't do is lie about other people and say terrible things about other people. Cut other people down. Slander people with your tongue. In this, David and Solomon seem to agree across the board because as we went through the Proverbs, we saw how often Solomon brought up how you speak Don't use your tongue to do damage or to slander people. David agrees. The upright man, the man who walks in integrity, does not slander with his tongue, nor does he do evil to his neighbor. Again, there's this interesting contrast, because it starts with internal integrity. It results in righteous works. Not slandering with your tongue comes from internal integrity. But then not doing evil to your neighbor is the activity. And so the proper activity, the proper speech, the proper behavior is a result of internal righteousness, internal integrity, internal honesty in each of these comparisons. He does not slander with his tongue nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. What that means is if you hear something bad about somebody else, and you pick it up and carry it, and you go tell somebody else, it's basically just gossiping, but it's keeping the tale alive. And especially if it's a friend, if it's somebody you know. If Steve comes to me and says, want to hear what I know about Micah? Which he does regularly. He'll call me, text me, just, guess what Micah did? And then if I believe him and go to Jeff and say, well, I heard about Micah. He did this and that and that. The guilty party there, according to David's equation here, the guilty party is me because I carried it to Jeff. And I slandered a friend. I carried a bad story about a friend. I carried a reproach against a friend. So all of that has to do with speech. All of that has to do with controlling your tongue. That part of your behavior demonstrates your internal integrity. Speak the truth from the inward man, from your heart. Do not slander people with your tongue. Don't do evil to your neighbor, nor take up a reproach against a friend in whose eyes a reprobate is despised. Interesting language. A reprobate is somebody who has nothing to do with God, someone who obviously is a lawbreaker, someone who is celebrating the sin that they live with and encouraging other people to do it with them. And David, because he's not only king, but by being king, he is also judge. And so he sees plenty of these reprobates getting hauled in front of him and he has to defend the one who has been harmed by the reprobate notice that it does not say I tolerate that it doesn't say I put up with that it says I despise that in whose eyes a reprobate is despised but by contrast but who honors those who fear the Lord those who have a proper reverence for Yahweh. So the contrast is between despising one group and honoring another group. And he's the king, so he can certainly lift up and honor and make a point of the class of people who fear the Lord while at the same time despising the class of people who are retrobate against God. And he swears to his own hurt, and does not change. Really interesting. It shows internal character, internal integrity, that this kind of person, out of fear of God, will actually swear to the truth of a matter, even if it does him damage. In other words, he takes responsibility for his own part in any wrongdoing, but at the same time, will not change his story. He does not change. Once he says, this is the truth, you know it's the truth, because he's not going to come along later if there is some kind of retribution against him, if he's suffering any kind of persecution. He's not going to change his story. Instead, he's going to be honest. He's going to be truthful, which is very much like verse 2, which said he speaks the truth in his heart. Because of his internal integrity, what he says is true, And it doesn't change, even if it hurts him. The truth is more important than his own reputation. The truth is more important to him and his integrity than whether or not it affects him badly. That's real integrity, when someone is willing to swear to their own harm. It reminds me a lot of Elijah, when Elijah prayed to God that it wouldn't rain, because he knew that God had said that if Israel went chasing after their foreign gods, that he would withhold the rain. And here was Israel in utter apostasy, and it was still raining. And they still had crops. Everything was fine. And so, living in a desert, Elijah prayed to God that it wouldn't rain. And it didn't rain for three and a half years, according to James. And so that is a good example of swearing even to your own hurt, caring more about God and his word, caring more about the integrity, the trustworthiness of God's word. And here Elijah realized that God had said he was going to do this, and yet he didn't seem to be doing it. So Elijah goes and prays God's word back to him and asks him to just do what he said he was going to do even though he was living in a desert and it was going to hurt him. And, of course, you know the story. God took care of Elijah. But Elijah didn't know that when he was praying. He just prayed out of the integrity of his heart and prayed, swore by God's word to his own hurt. So that's a good example, I think. Finally, verse 5. He does not put out his money at interest. That is something that Solomon brought up a few times in the Proverbs, that if you're going to loan to somebody, especially if it's somebody who was within Israel, those are your brethren, those are your neighbors, and if they're so impoverished, if they're in such need that they need to borrow from you, then don't make a profit off them. Don't charge them usury, Instead, out of the goodness of your heart, of the kindness and the generosity that God has demonstrated to you, you also demonstrate it to them that are your brethren. So it's not a business deal. It's sustaining somebody who's in need. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. That's another one of those judge moments because David is... The king, and therefore is the judge. Solomon also brings this up regularly that the rich could go bribe a judge in order to get a judgment that was positive to themselves, even if it hurt the poor people who were trying to bring a charge against them. And so Again, just fairness, just righteousness, just defense of the poor, not taking a bribe so that you can get a judgment to go your way. He who does these things, says David, will never be shaken. In other words, he's never going to think about it and go, you know, that whole walking in integrity and righteousness thing, that whole thing where I fear God and can count on my eternity. That's not working out that well for me. I think I'll change my mind. That's what he means by the word shaken here. To be shaken in your integrity, to be shaken in your confidence that this is the right way to be and the right thing to do. So that is Psalm 15. That is the whole of it. David asks the question, who can abide in your tent and dwell in your holy hill? And his answer is, people who fear you and therefore walk uprightly. That's the summation of the entire psalm. So Psalm 16. You will notice the superscript says, a mictom of David. Anybody here know what a miktam is? Nope. Nope. Either does anybody else? Nobody knows. We've lost that word. The NASB translators take a stab at it and say it's an epigrammic poem, or maybe an atonement psalm. They don't know, because it might also be an instrument. Nobody knows what it means. But we're about to read a a miktum from David. Which starts, preserve me, oh God. In the last few weeks, we have seen this kind of thinking over and over again. Every time David gets in trouble, every time David is looking for a stronghold, every time he's looking for protection, he announces that the Lord himself is his protection because he realizes that there's no door strong enough to keep armies away from him. He realizes there are no towers high enough that the enemies can't scale it. He realizes there's nothing in this world that can give him the kind of protection that God himself can give. And so he goes back again to Preserve me, O Lord, because I take refuge in you. You're my hiding place. You're my strong tower. You're my fortress. Or here, I'll put it this way. If you do have a castle, and hopefully you all do, maybe one apiece. If you do have a castle, but you don't have God, you have no security. If you don't have a castle, then you do have God you actually have security because nothing can get to you unless the sovereign God is allowing it, planning it, determining it. And so I think we as humans sometimes, we count on our bank account or we count on our physical youth and strength. That one was from Micah. Sometimes we think that what we have in this life is going to be our security. We're surrounded by an army or surrounded by enough friends. Right now, uh, the latest stories coming out of Russia are that Putin apparently has some disease. The latest pictures and videos don't look good. Okay, he's got a whole army. He's got a whole country protecting him. But pretty soon, even if it's not this week, it's going to be Pretty soon, he's going to stand before the God of ages. And then who's going to protect him? So the only real security is to know that God is on your side. If God be before us, who can be against us? And so David says, preserve me, O God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, thou art my Lord. Actually, that's, I said to Yahweh, thou art Adonai, my God. I have no good besides thee. I mentioned that a few minutes ago. Here is David's admission that the only goodness that he actually has, the only good that he receives in this lifetime, the only thing that he counts as truly good in this lifetime is God alone. Because I don't care what it is. If it's some physical thing, it's going to wear out. If it's some physical thing, it's going to rust. It's going to corrupt. It's going to mold. It's going to get eaten by bugs. Something is going to happen to it. There is no physical thing that you can count on. If it's people, I don't care who the person is, they're going to let you down. They're going to disappoint you. You're going to go through difficulties with them, just because that's the nature of human beings and human corruption. The only thing in this world, considering that there is no one who is truly, genuinely good, no one who is truly, genuinely righteous and holy, the only goodness you're going to find in this world is God himself. And that is David's plea here. I take refuge in you because you're the only thing that is genuinely good in this lifetime. I have no good besides thee. As for the saints who are in the earth, as for the holy ones, the righteous ones, the set-apart ones, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. Majestic is an interesting translation by the NASB translators. It means the ones who sit in good places. It means the ones who have a good reputation, the ones who David actually delights in and wants to be around, it stands in direct contrast to the reprobate who he despises. So there are the reprobates of the world. He wants nothing to do with them. But then he sees the saints, the godly, the ones who are actually pursuing the word of God and the worship of God. And his desire is to place them in places of honor, Reward those who actually are godly people on the earth. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another god will be multiplied. What is it to barter? Starting, I guess, this Saturday, we're going to have the farmer's market open up here Two years ago, the last time the farmer's market was opened here in Smyrna, there was a, a fellow there. that had some little jewelry objects and stuff. And when I was asking him about prices, he actually said to me, uh, I'll take cash or barter. And I hadn't heard anybody in a long time say that he was willing to barter. So what is it to barter? It's to trade. Right. To say, instead of money, I got something you want, you got something I want, let's work out a deal here. Well, that's the same idea here, where David is saying, there are going to be sorrows for those who have traded Yahweh for another god. Who is not a god. Who is some kind of idol. And so they are ultimately going to end up in sorrow. So Yahweh, the only real God, David admits there's nothing but good in you. You're the only real goodness in the earth. But all those who have traded you away for some other God, all they're going to get is sorrow for that. Yeah, I'm going to go with outer darkness seems kind of sorrowful. Once you are standing before the God of ages and he judges you and says, depart from my sight eternally, that's a whole lot of sorrow. So even if in this lifetime you're getting the spoils of this world, the spoils that are all going to decay and rot, the spoils that cannot defend you when you stand before God, even if you have all the riches and all the stuff of this planet, that can't help you when you stand before the judge of the universe and especially if you've traded away your faith in him for the worship of something you made with your own hands. So David says that he's not going to take part in that worship. I shall not pour out their libations of blood, nor shall I take their names upon my lips. I won't even say the names of those gods. I won't even speak these names because there is only one God, Yahweh alone. And his name, to put a fine point on it, Jesus himself said, the name of Yahweh is to be reverenced, which is why we say our Father who art in heaven, hallowed, is your name. It's completely separate from all other names. It's completely distinct from all other words. It's why we're told that we're not to take it lightly or say his name in vain. That's one of the commandments. So the name, the person, the being of Yahweh is completely separate from all these other foreign gods. Therefore, David says, and I think it's wisdom for all of us, David says, take no part in it. Be no part of it. I don't. I don't even say their name. And I will not participate in their worship. Instead, Yahweh says, verse 5, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup, and thou dost support my lot. What he's basically saying is, Yahweh is what I'm looking forward to, my inheritance, the thing that is left to me when everything else is taken away, the thing that I want most is Yahweh. I want to live in his tents. I want to be on his holy mountain. I want to be with him eternally. And if I get nothing else out of this world but I get him, that's the only inheritance I want. That's the only inheritance I need. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance. And my cup, the Hebrew word behind cup there, one of the definitions for it is my lot in life. And so that's why the very next phrase is, and you support my lot. So in other words, David is admitting that everything that happens in his life, everything he has in life, whatever his lot in life is, whatever his cup is, and of course the Bible uses that word cup a lot of different ways. In the book of Revelation, we're going to read about a a woman who has a cup of abominations or... We'll read things like, my cup runneth over and stuff. Those are all phrases that aren't describing a piece of pottery, an actual cup, but they are saying this is what the the lot is. This is what the foreordained portion of life looks like. And so, the Lord is my portion of my inheritance, and he is my lot in life and you do support my lot. So whatever my lot in life is, whatever comes my way, you supported it, you determined it, you gave it to me, you're taking me through it, you'll get me safely to the end of it and you're the only inheritance I want out of this life because everything else in this life is passing. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup Thou dost support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, and indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Well, a moment ago, he told you what his inheritance was as the Lord, and now he's saying, and that's good, that's enough, that's beautiful to me. Even if I don't get all the stuff of this world, even if I don't get all the physical stuff of this life, if I get the Lord, that is not only sufficient, it's wonderful to me. The phrase, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, simply means the way my life is going to go, my lot in life, and the way that I walk it out, all of that that God has determined for me, actually took me to pleasant places. I mean, for heaven's sakes, David's king. David is wealthy, David has plenty of whatever this life can offer. But on top of that, he has God himself. And so he admits that God's way, God's determination, God's plan is fully sufficient and actually wonderful. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup, and you do support my lot, and the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places, and indeed my heritage is beautiful to me. Consequently, verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has counseled me. Oftentimes we've talked about that word "bless." there, it means to speak well of. David is saying, I will worship God, I will speak well of God, I will extol the virtues of God. And if I get nothing in this lifetime but God, that's enough for me. Then because he's king and because he is following the dictates of the law of Moses in ruling Israel and in guiding Israel, he says that during the night... While he's asleep, God instructs him in his inner man. I will bless the Lord who has counseled me, and indeed, my mind... That, it's an odd translation. I guess it gets at the sense of it, but it's actually the Hebrew word for kidneys, believe it or not, but that sentence would be very weird if it said, my kidneys instruct me. Um, Any and old guys would understand that, but... <laughs> But who knows if that'll make it to the internet but, but what it means is my inward man my inward being instructs me so that's how David rules as king judges as king is that he follows the word of God the law of God the dictates of God and internally God instructs him indeed my Internal man instructs me in the night. I have set the Lord continually before me. What a great way to live. To be in the constant awareness of the presence of God. I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because I think it's pertinent. I knew a pastor many years ago who, when I was talking with him, Every 15 minutes, his watch would beep, just make a little noise. And I finally <laughs> asked him, "You know, what is that? What, it's reminding you of something. What's, what is it? Time to take your meds? I mean, what's going on every 15 minutes that you've set your watch to do that? And he said, it's a reminder to myself that God is here. Every 15 minutes. Just that constant reminder, God is here, God is here. He said, because I just want that to become habitual in my mind. Whatever I'm doing, wherever I'm going, whatever I'm reading, whoever I'm talking to, I want to be always reminded, God is here, God is here. Well, that's essentially what David is saying here. I've set the Lord continually before me. I'm always conscious of God first. I'm always conscious that I rule because God himself put me here, and my lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And then he says, because he is at my right hand, I will never be shaken. He used that word shaken earlier. One of the characteristics of a man of integrity is that he can't be shaken. David says that the reason he can't be shaken is because he's always got God near, so near that he's right at my right hand. He's right here. The implication being I could, I could reach out and touch him. He's right here. I'm constantly, continually aware of the presence of Yahweh with me. He is always right here at my right hand. Therefore, I cannot be shaken. And if you are conscious that God is with you all the time then what can shake you? If you're aware that God is listening, that he's watching, that he's present, that he's empowering you, that he's giving you the strength to breathe another breath, if you're aware of that, then you're not going to back away from your Christian profession. Because you know who it is that you serve. You know that he's constantly with you. And you care more about his word And his reputation than you care about your own. I have set the Lord continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, knowing all that, therefore, my heart is glad. And my glory, my inward man, everything that makes up who I am, rejoices and my flesh will dwell securely. Very, very interesting phrase, because now he's talking about his own life and death. He's not just saying, I'm going to be protected in my flesh. David certainly knew what it was to suffer in his flesh. But when it's all said and done, when it's all wrapped up, he believes that he's going to be secure in the grave. And I think that phrase is the pivot point where David's psalm of praise to God turns into a messianic psalm. And David is now going to say something that's going to be picked up in the New Testament because what he's saying here isn't true about himself. And yet he's putting it in the first person. My heart is glad, my glory rejoices. I hope that's the feeling you all have. The more conscious you are, the more aware you are of the presence of God, of Him guiding and leading and protecting you, the more you can just be glad and glory in this life. But then He says, My flesh will also dwell securely, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Okay, that's true of David. My soul is not going to go into the grave with my flesh. Instead, you're going to take my soul to heaven to be with you. I'm going to be dwelling in your holy hill. I'm going to be abiding in your tents. Neither, he writes, wilt thou allow thy holy one to undergo decay. That can't be said about David. And in fact, that's the argument that we're about to read. The apostle Paul makes the very argument that when David said this, he couldn't be talking about himself. Let's read the last verse of this psalm, and then we'll go to the book of Acts to close the evening. Verse 11 says, thou will make known to me the path of life. There he is again talking about the lines, talking about his portion, his inheritance, his lot, his cup that falls to him. You will make known to me the path of life, the way that I I'm going to walk where I'm going to go. You're guiding, you're leading, you're in charge. I'm only going to go wherever you take me. And that is my heritage. That's my inheritance. That's my confidence. That's why I have joy, because I know that you are making known to me the path of life. And in thy presence is fullness of joy. And in thy right hand, there are pleasures. Forever, I can't wait to get to the pleasures forever part. But notice that in God, with God, in the presence of God, is fullness of joy. I got an email just this week from a young man who was dealing with his own sinfulness. And his question was, quite literally, is it okay for a Christian to ever have joy Or should I live in continual guilt and sense of remorse for my own continual sinfulness? And I wrote back and said, what about the joy of the Lord? Get your eyes off yourself. Get your eyes on the finished work of Christ. I think we've concluded now that, yes, you're a sinner. But now think about the solution to your sin. And there is tremendous joy in that. Here, David is saying the same thing. In your presence is fullness of joy. The more you understand about who God is and who you are, and the more you understand that by his grace, you're going to live eternally in his presence, abiding in his tent and dwelling in his holy hill, even though you're here on planet Earth in this decaying, rebellious body. Despite that, despite your own sinfulness and your own depravity, despite all that, if you know that you're going to be accepted and ever loved in the place where there are pleasures forever, how does that not bring you joy? How does that not make you happy in the midst of all the problems of this life? It's one of the reasons that Paul could say that we have a peace that passes understanding, The world doesn't understand the peace, the confidence, or the joy that we have. Because we know that this world is not our home. And one day, we're going to leave here and go to the place where there are pleasures forever. When we get to the end of the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, when we get there, someday, when we get there, maybe Jesus will come back first. But when we get there, the last couple chapters of the book of Revelation describe some of this everlasting joy. And so David was looking forward to the same thing we're looking forward to. In the presence of God is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. And that's why he could say that the only thing that mattered to him here in life, the only portion of his inheritance that mattered to him, was to be with Yahweh. So a moment ago, we were reading verse 10, which says, For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. Clearly, David does not think of himself as the Holy One. Clearly, David was speaking messianically here. Turn to Acts 13. I find it very, very difficult to break up this sermon from the Apostle Paul. So I'm going to start reading at verse 26. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family. So who is he talking to? Israelites. Yeah. Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear the Lord. Okay, those are the God-fearers the converted Gentiles among the Jews and those among you who fear God to us the word of salvation is sent out for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath fulfilled these by condemning him okay so now he's Explaining exactly what happened in Jerusalem, the leaders of the people, the rulers of the people didn't know Jesus, didn't recognize Jesus, and didn't understand the voice of the prophets. Didn't understand that all the prophets were predicting Jesus, and therefore, as a consequence, despite the fact that the prophets were read every Sabbath in the temple, despite the fact that they were often the ones who were doing the reading... Despite all of that, they just couldn't understand the word of God. There's an obvious example of the fact that Christianity is a revealed religion. And that in order to understand the Bible, God has to give you the ability to understand the Bible. But that's, I don't have time to talk about that. But it's just so obvious right here. They would stand in the temple every Sabbath and read the prophets, but never got it, never understood it. So not recognizing him, nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. They fulfilled these. They fulfilled the prophets by condemning Jesus. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. And when they had carried out all that was written concerning him... So even though they didn't get it, even though they didn't understand it, they did exactly what God said they were going to do, exactly what the prophets predicted they were going to do. And when they had accomplished everything that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news, the gospel of the promise that was made to the fathers. Really very, very, very interesting. I I wish I had more time to go into that. But here is Paul saying the very good news that we (laughs) preach to you is the same promise that was made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Way back when in the Abrahamic covenant, way back when God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, the fulfillment of that is Jesus' coming. And so the good news we preach to you is the promise that was made all the way back in the Abrahamic covenant, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to decay, he has spoken this way, and I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, thou wilt not allow thy holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, died, he fell asleep, and he was laid among his fathers, and he underwent decay. But he whom God raised up did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you cannot be freed through the law of Moses." So there is Paul demonstrating that the psalm that David wrote was a messianic psalm, and that when David said that God would not allow his holy one to undergo decay, that he was actually speaking of Jesus, and the only way that you can make sure that someone who dies doesn't go through decay is to make them not dead anymore. So in that messianic psalm, David was predicting the resurrection the same way that Isaiah predicted it 700 years in advance. David predicted it 1,000 years in advance. And so Paul could pick it up and say, why is it a surprise to you that he rose from the dead? Your own prophets said it, and it's in your own psalms. It's in your own poetry. It's in your own writing. And you still don't get it. So that was David's hand in the ongoing theology of God leading to Christ. Pretty cool. That is my uh, summation statement on it. Pretty cool. But it is pretty cool.
0: Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. For books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.